Bonjour, dear listeners, and welcome to Defense, the conversation about defense you never knew you always wanted to have. I'm Dr. Alex Valenti, and as I wanted to make this very first episode extra special for you and for myself, I decided to record it back where it all started, in Toulouse, with the person who introduced me to the world of defense, and in the very same bar where we met all those years ago. Welcome to Defense. I'm Dr. Alex Valenti, and I'm here today with a friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Thomas Winnington. Hi, Tom. Good evening, Alex. First of all, I'd like to say um, I'm very flattered by your introduction, um, which is very, very kind. And also, I'm particularly flattered and honored to be uh, the first guest on your very exciting new podcast series. And uh, I warn you, I'm going to be tuning into each one of them. So um, I'm very much looking forward to them. And I think. Uh, the community that we're in has probably needed something like this for some time. So I think um, it's particularly apropos what you've done and I'm very much looking forward to seeing how it develops. Ah, well, thanks so much, Tom. And, uh, it means a lot to me that, uh, that, you know, that you think it's worthwhile and that you're looking forward to listening to it. I'm really happy to have you as my first guest and that was the whole idea because we're also today here in the bar where we met for the first time five years ago, completely randomly, right? It is indeed uh, eight years ago. Eight years ago, you're totally right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> with, with, with two heads together, we'll get the dates right. Um, yeah. But um, I, I should probably tell your listeners a little bit of a story about this bar and why we're here, because we're in a, a bar in Toulouse called Café de Commerce, which is a favourite watering hole of ours. <laughs> and uh, the reason why this bar is significant, you can probably hear the music in the background and the general hubbub of conversation, is because eight years ago, this was where we discussed. Um, and um, how would you put it? I mean, we'd met. We'd met in a burger restaurant. Correct. As you were walking past earlier that evening. Correct. Through a mutual friend of ours. And we got chatting, and you were at a particular point in your life at that moment. So, refresh my memory of where you were then <laughs> and how we ended up here. Yeah, so it's a good question, actually. Um, and it's a story I love telling people. Uh, basically, I my parents have a house not too far from Toulouse, and I had just handed in my thesis my PhD thesis and I had no idea where my life was going and so I thought I would go to Toulouse for what should have been three weeks you know get clear my head just do nothing for three weeks after five years of hard labor as you would know having done a PhD yourself and yeah we're staying with this woman in an Airbnb and so we went out and we she came across you and she was a friend of your partner and you hadn't seen her in a while and she said do you mind if we go and say hi to a friend of mine and you and I started chatting and I said to you if I remember correctly listen you know I, I like what you do your job is interesting my PhD was in post-conflict reconstruction your job was defense journalism and I said to you listen if you ever need any help I don't know what's going on with my life so give me a shout you know and I'll be happy to lend you a hand on any projects right and it was particularly opportune that you did that because unbeknownst to Dr. Valenti <laughs> um, at that moment I had desperate need uh, to have a writer um, come on our books. Uh, at that moment, I was editing two defense publications and uh, we had some very good writers, uh, many of whom are, are, are very, very dear friends and who many of whom uh, Alice has got to know in the intervening years. Correct. Um, 
but we, we desperately needed somebody and we particularly needed somebody to write on naval matters and uh, Alex and I got chatting in the in the burger place and then later on in the bar we're in now <laughs> about writing and about doing something <clears throat> excuse me on uh, naval matters now the reason one of the reasons why I was very interested was because of the conflict perspective of what you've done with your PhD. Obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, but you looked at uh, Timor, you looked at correct. the political situation and obviously the very um, turbulent time Timor had experienced yep. back in the 1990s when Indonesia was uh, disengaging and the state was becoming independent as it is today. And so that immediately piqued my interest. And I was thinking, well, you're somebody who clearly understands those political dynamics, you're understanding uh, a situation like that. And I, I figure if you can if you can understand something as complex as the Timor situation and both the factors before it and then the legacy of that situation, then hey, you know, you can probably get your head around a lot of other stuff as well, which would probably be a hell of a lot less complex at the end of the day. And um, I just thought, well, you know, if you're up for it, how would you feel about writing us some bits and pieces on on naval and maritime sea power affairs, an area obviously that you've since very much specialized in and now very much recognized an authority on. Um, but you also turned your hand to other subjects as you got writing for us. I remember you, you were doing other things as well. You looked at naval stuff, but there were political things I remember you writing about yeah. as well. You brought the whole package together, really, which we, we were very grateful for. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it was uh, it was very opportune. It was very timely. I mean, the stars aligned. But what I also remember is when you when you called me up a couple of weeks later, I think it was, and you said, "Let's go for a beer," as we're doing now. And uh, I need you know to chat with you about this opportunity. And I remember you said, "Okay, so you you could you know uh, there's this thing called the Defense Magazine Armada International." I was like, "A what now?" <laughs> There is such thing as a defense magazine. <laughs> and then the first article you asked me to write was about frigates and destroyers. And again, I was like, what in the world is a frigate? And how am I going to write about their evolution? And um, this is where I actually have to give a lot of credit to uh, Matt Keres at Avacent, because he's the first person I called and he extremely patiently took the time to explain to me what was a frigate, what was a destroyer, how they had evolved, what missions they served. And I think that's what I liked about it. I mean, I had no idea this was even a possibility for me in terms of jobs, but I really like the fact that it's not just about, in fact, it's not really about the capability. Um, and this is what you and I have discussed so many times, right? It's about the missions that they, they, they do, uh, they're taken on and why they've chosen this specific ship with these specific systems and equipment to do these specific missions. Um, and you're right, at the time you'd also asked me to do a lot of peace building and, post and uh, peacekeeping articles. Uh, again, because I was really interested into the whole aspect of how do you write an article and keep it interesting in terms of defense equipment, capabilities and systems and what it means in today's world. I'm, I'm very glad you gave a, a shout out there to Matt because he, he's a dear friend and he's he's been a, a lot of help uh, along with his team at Avocet over the years. And um, I suppose at this point, I want to almost turn the tables a bit, little bit here. And I, well, I don't <laughs> want to sort of I want to kind of hijack this and assume the role of, of interviewer. But one of the things I was thinking when we were talking about doing this podcast and recording, 
and we're thinking about the time that we've known each other and in that eight years um the world has changed in in many ways in fact it's changed considerably as we've seen last year by the time i think this podcast goes out regrettably you know and and very sadly it will be a year since the, the yeah. invasion of ukraine had started second invasion of ukraine i should say um and in that eight years, we've also seen the pullout of the United States-led forces in Afghanistan. We've seen other contingencies, seen the rise of China, etc. From your perspective, reflecting on your career and on these global events, what have been the most significant things for you? What are the kind of takeaways from that as you've as you've sort of developed your interest? Let's say. Wow, you really turned a table. <laughs> And I'm not sorry, with an easy question. I'm, I'm sorry about my inability to ask a question in under one paragraph as well. <laughs> it's okay because you, you know, you hit the nerve, and I'm gonna, you know, show my incapability of answering in one paragraph. Um, oh man, my takeaways. Uh, I think what's been really interesting in terms of naval writing is that I remember a lot of my early articles. So we're talking 2015, 2016 here were very much about HADR, you know, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. So many of the missions that uh, these ships did, so we're talking patrols, frigates, not destroyers, but um, were about delivering aid to countries, uh, patrolling for security, uh, maritime security. And progressively, especially in the last three years, and of course, as you mentioned rightly, in the last year, uh, the dynamics have changed and what navies are looking at now is the resurgence of great power competition. And you're seeing this very much in the types of ships that they're asking for. <clears throat> so none of the problems that they had before have disappeared. And now they have to ask for multi-mission ships, but they have to be able to also fight wars. I mean, again, in Ukraine, we you know it's been less in the news, um, <clears throat> but We've seen a lot of um, events happening around naval warfare as well. So we're talking a lot more about ships that can deliver, you know, um, a good punch and at the same time secure maritime space and at the same time deliver aid because, of course, typhoons haven't stopped happening uh, in places like Asia. Um, it's interesting for such a short span of a career so far, eight years, I've already seen such a significant shi a shift. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it sort of got me thinking really that in terms of what you've looked at in the maritime space, which I think is probably transferable onto pretty much all other domains, yeah. land, sea, air, space, cyber, etc. Um, is that a lot of what we do and a lot of what we talk about is largely a question of resource balance. Yeah. Any government, including the United States with its absolutely huge defense budget, yeah. there is a finite amount of money, industrial capacity, personnel, expertise, etc. Yeah. And how do we balance that to answer, can we answer everything? Probably not. Yeah. So if we cannot answer everything, where do we put our emphasis and where do we put our priorities? Yeah. And I suppose one of the things that made me think what you were talking about just now, that I remember when I got into defence in the late 90s, early 2000s, that there was a huge emphasis, certainly in the West, on um, exactly what you were just talking about, humanitarian relief, disaster assistance, peacekeeping, 
peace enforcement, peace building, security yeah. sector yeah. reform, all of these things. As you've just said, these things don't go away. No. They're still there and they're still required. From your perspective, do you think at the policy level in the West, let's say in Europe, where we are now, obviously, do you think there's a suitable cognizance of that? Or is there the danger when the attention shifts that the, the allocation, the budget, the money, all of those things vanish? It's a very interesting question, Tom, as always. Uh, <laughs> you flatterer, Alex. <laughs> oh, stop <laughs> What is it you always tell me? Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> is that what am I? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, here, I think I need to give another shout out, and it would be to my friends in, in Kiel. Who um, at the ISPK who hold a conference every year called the uh, Kiel International Sea Power Series? Um, it's very NATO focused, very Navy NATO focused, obviously Kiel Sea Power. And what transpires very much during this conference is that at operational level, there's very much a sense of all the missions we've been doing for the last however many 10, 20 years have not gone away. Uh, we still need those Swiss Army knives kind of ships that can do multiple missions. But at the same time, we have this resurgence of great power competition and we need to be able to meet this challenge. Um, so there is an awareness that they need more budget, they need more capabilities, they need ships that can do all these different things. But also what transpires when they talk about it is that at a political level, because they're answering to an electorate, to people who vote for them um, every year, like every few years, they have to do short-term things. And short-term things to be elected are big things. And big things are like big ships and big submarines and not necessarily you know, always in tune with everything that is needed at Navy level. Um, so, to give you a very simple example, now, as you were saying, now it's like, oh, resurgence of great power competition, so we must be able to fight the great war. And it's like, yes, but we also still have issues with maritime security, so what do we do? You know, how do we stretch our navies? Um, so yeah, I think what I can see from this conference and from what I'm reading and the interviews I'm having is, and I feel it also at industry level. Oh, now the, the rhetoric is about great power competition. Yes, but again, you still have maritime security to look after and humanitarian assistance. So the messages out there are very much concentrated on the new threats. But navies, of course, at the operational level is like, no, we need money for everything, not just the new threats. This gets back into, I think, the, the capability and the mission picture you were talking about earlier on. Mm beginning of the podcast that one of the things I often think about is and I like the point you made just there about politicians particularly in, in democracies politicians like big shiny objects you yeah. know and that's very true in the defense space I think um, it's true in other spaces of, of government spending as well be it a hospital or a new school or um, a new road railway whatever it might be an infrastructure project let's yeah. say but I think in the defence space, it's particularly apparent. And when you are a democratically elected policymaker, lawmaker at the end of the day, what, regardless of where you are on the aisle, I think there is that attraction of saying, look, we've just bought this big, shiny offshore patrol vessel, yeah. naval helicopter, 
whatever it might be. Isn't it great? This is a tangible thing as where your tax dollars are going. Yeah. The problem I think we face now is that a lot of the enablers we have in the naval space, or, or any domain for that matter, they're not necessarily discernible. If you take, for instance, what the what the US Navy is doing as it's part of the joint all-domain command and control system, this big overarching US initiative to effectively federate a bunch of stovepipes, command and control systems together. Mm. From what it's a fiendishly complex project, but from from what I understand with it is the idea that at the end of the day, a um, member of an infantry squad on a, on a beachhead or wherever it is could be able to call in fires from a naval vessel as they can do at the moment but that's that system will be greatly simplified yep. with communication links between them between the army marine corps units whatever it is and the navy to enable that to happen much quicker and much easily more easily than it does at the moment yeah and that's a crucial capability. It's absolutely crucial to be able to do that, particularly when you're looking at near-peer adversaries, you look at China, the Russians of this world, all of that yeah. kind of thing. The problem is, if you're a politician on the evening news and you're doing a 45-second interview, it's just taken me God knows how long to describe what that actually is. And I'm talking, obviously, to an educated audience, you and, and our listeners. Yeah. But then describing that on the 8 o'clock evening news, and to be able to have somebody in their living room in Stevenage or in Clermont-Ferrand or in yeah. Stuttgart, wherever it is, to go, okay, I get that, I completely understand it, it's very important we're spending money on that, yeah. is, is a, a difficult thing. I'm not necessarily, I, I would not want to say that electorates are stupid or versus no. stupid, I don't think that's the point. No. But the point is that they're, they're people, all of us, me included, you included, all taxpayers, all voters, we also have, we have 61 things on our mind and we have 60 minutes to complete them in. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the case for everybody. So articulating that beyond the big ships, beyond the big shiny objects, that we need this and therefore we need tax dollars and therefore we need political support is a fiendishly difficult thing. And it's only going to get more difficult as time goes on, I, I fear. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, um, and I think... I like the fact that you, you got into this conversation because I think it ties nicely as to why I decided to do this podcast and, and you, you decided to be on board immediately as well, which I'm extremely grateful for. I was again. delighted to be invited <laughs> and us. It was very kind. Um, because I think we, and we've had this conversation, the two of us, so many times and we've had it with our colleagues and friends as well. And, and, and I've had it with my friends who are not in defense. You know, a lot of people say, I don't understand what it is that they do I don't understand all I see is a lot of money going into a submarine do we really need submarines what do submarines do you know or saying oh they're spending all this money in big guns and uh, electromagnetic guns or whatever and it's like I don't understand how this relates to my everyday life or you know how it works or you know is it good or bad or is it good or bad for the environment as well any of those things you make a brilliant point though because the um uh strategic expert and academic um lawrence friedman once said um in in one of his books at least i think it was laurie i hope it was i'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it was but he said um that in all aspects of government life, yeah. be it the provision of education, the provision of healthcare, um, whatever government service you're delivering, defence and the military are unusual in the fact that 
most people go into the military and will never actually practice their given career in anger. Yeah. Thank thank goodness yeah, that's yeah. the case. Absolutely. You know, wars as we look now at the dawn of the 21st century, well, actually, we're moving into the, the, the quarter point of the 21st century, are mercifully few and far between, particularly mm. affecting, let's say, the US-led alliance of Western and allied nations at yeah. the end of the day. Hence why Ukraine is such a shock to people, because we thought in Europe we'd, we'd largely banish that. So you have a situation where you're spending a huge amount of money on people, equipment, capabilities, that you have to keep trained, equipped, and primed. Yeah for something they may never do. Correct. You contrast that with uh, teachers, prison officers, doctors, nurses, pathologists, morticians, the list could go on. (laughs) And you're spending money, rightly, on people who are doing that job every single day. Yeah. All of those professions, military included, are equally important. Yeah. And and that's why I think often when you get into the whole thing of talking about funding the military or talk about funding any government service, and obviously we do that through taxation, we do that through government selling bonds, mm. a myriad of ways. Um a conversation come up can often come down to, well, why why are we funding this and we're not funding that? Yeah. Or why why are we buying this new submarine but we're not building a new hospital. Yeah. They're very valid arguments. Of course. My repost would be, actually, they're all equally as important. Yes. You can't say you're not going to build the hospital, you are going to build the submarine, and vice versa. Yeah. And I think one of the things I, I'm interested in with your podcast and with these discussions as we move ahead is, is having a space and an opportunity to discuss those kind of aspects. Because yeah. actually how defensive connects with the public is is it's crucially important because at the end of the day the public pays for it correct we all pay for it yeah but when we often see it is a military parade as the patrouille de france doing their yeah. amazing displays after the rugby final yeah. in toulouse yeah. um vigipirate maybe you know? vigipirate that's yeah, a good yeah. point here we are in france and we we have um, soldiers who routinely patrol and protect strategic sites, mm-hmm. railway stations, for instance, against terrorist attack. Um, so there is that question, I think, how, how does, effectively, how does defence argue its corner yeah. in a democracy? Yeah. Um, and, and you're the person to continue that discussion. <laughs> oh dear, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> it is, this, this reminds me of when, when you started working for the magazines and you were talking about your frigate destroyer feature yeah. earlier on. Of course, it, I, I was absolutely desperate to get the pun in that, well, we threw you in at the deep end <laughs> as its maritime affairs. Um, but I think your ability to pick up those incredibly nuanced problem, complex subjects very, very quick. And I say that with not an ounce of condescension at all. I mean, this is, this is I, I speak as a fan, um, absolutely. And I, th- I think you will be in a good position to do that because I think one of the things with a podcast is you can bring so many voices into it. Yes. It's a conversation without end, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. No, you're right. And I think what I would like to do with, the postca- with this podcast and what I would like you to help me do as well as... You've agreed to co-host regularly as of well. Course, absolutely. Um, again, very honoured. Um, is as you said, you know, it's going to be twice a month, and there's going to be one podcast episode that will be, I think, for everyone, for the general public. 
uh, on a topic that can be ranging from women in defense you know we've discussed doing something like this uh women in world war ii their role um then bringing in you know all the also electronic warfare i mean you know listeners you'll find out more about that this. wouldn't interest me at all <laughs> of course not tom <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying this <laughs> But also the second one would be far more defense focused, but again, trying to bring in the technological aspect that can appeal to our community and bringing this into what it means in today's world and making it attractive and, and making defense understandable to people who are not in defense. And, and I think, you know, and I've had the conversation also with people who are in the armed forces, at operational level, they said, oh, we would love to be able to contribute to your podcast because there's a conversation that needs to be had, that needs to be out there, and we don't explain enough what we do. And we hope our communications department will be okay with this because if we're not, then we're doing something wrong. Um, so even the armed forces really want to discuss what it is that they do, talk about their job, explain why you know they're putting their lives on the line. I mean, even as you said, these days maybe less often so, but still, you know, they're still putting their lives on the line. They're trained to do so. So it's important that people understand and they get the backing that they need. So yeah, let's hope that this podcast will bring that to people and you know that you and I manage to make this available to everyone and understandable to everyone. Well, I have to say it's been an absolute honor. It's been a real pleasure and I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. And I think we've brought it to a good conclusion point possibly because I can see both of our beer glasses are looking rather empty. So maybe time for a trip to the bar. Yes, I believe we have deserved our second beer to celebrate our first podcast. Thank you so much, Tom, for agreeing to be here with me today. It has been a pleasure chatting with you, as always. And well, to our listeners, um, stay tuned for the next episode, which will be in a couple of weeks' time. And I am not going to reveal quite yet what it will be about, but it will be a very good surprise. Well, Alex, I have to say once again, I'm, I'm very honoured and humbled. It's been an absolute joy, as always. I'm very excited about the upcoming second edition. I will be tuning in. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be. So thank you once again. So there you have it, folks. You now know all about the crazy story about how I got into the field of defense in the first place. But also why with Tom we believe that this podcast is not only important, but also rather timely. You've been listening to Defense, and I really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. The next episode will be released on February 17th, so if you like this one, don't forget to spread the word, and until then, au revoir et à bientôt.